you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And we'll be looking at verses 13 to 34. Mark 12, verses 13 to 34. Because of the length of the text, I just want to start off reading a few verses with you. And you can follow along. I'm going to read verses 13 and 14. And then skip down to verse 28. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said to him. Actually, jump with me down to verse 18. Notice this. And Sadducees came to him. Now jump down to verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard him disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him. And now I'll jump down to verse 34, the last half of the verse. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now you're probably wondering why we're covering so many verses in one sermon. This is unusual for us. I want to answer that question with an experience that I enjoyed several years ago while standing in line at a Barnes & Noble bookstore. As is typical for the line, for the cash register, it's filled with an assortment of knickknacks and candy and little books to try to get you to spend that additional dollar or two. One of those little things in particular caught my eye. I don't remember the title of this little book, but the premise has stuck with me to this day. Opening the book, the first official page revealed a solid red page with golden or brown little ovals speckled about, seemingly in some kind of a pattern. No words. The picture itself was beautiful, but it didn't make much sense. I had no idea what it was until I turned the page to discover that it was actually a strawberry. The book was on macro photography. The principle was it would zoom in really close on an object, and the idea was for you to figure out what it was before flipping the page to see it in its appropriate context. While the close-ups were beautiful, they didn't make much sense apart from an appropriate perspective. So is the case with our text today. You can zoom into any one of the stories here in Mark chapter 12 and see something beautiful about Jesus. But Mark seems to intend for us to understand this collection of texts from a certain distance. Why is it so important for us to get the big picture here? I think I just need to remind you of the people that Mark is writing to. We've concluded in previous studies that these readers are more than likely from Rome. They regularly experienced confusion concerning the source of truth. They didn't know which God, small g, to trust. It was a polytheistic society. For many, there would have been a reticence to accept Jesus' exclusive authority. Believers in Rome would have wanted a reassurance that Jesus' ethical code was credible that his teaching on eternity, more importantly, was reliable. But do we not also live in that same pluralistic society? One in which people are confused about the source of truth. Maybe you or someone you know has given up on the idea of truth altogether, abandoned hope in some form of exclusion of divine authority. Here's another question for you. Does Do you or does someone you know long for the reassurance that what Jesus says here about eternity and what it takes to get in is actually right? 
We want assurance. We want to know that if this Jesus is saying that he's the only way, that he's right about that. And it's toward these ends that this relatively large passage of Scripture helps us today. See, Mark has consistently confirmed that this Jesus is the authoritative Messiah, the Son of God. We've seen instance and instance of that throughout the book. But in our most recent studies, we've seen this divine, messianic authority targeted at its only viable competition in the Jewish world of that day, the Sanhedrin. These were the standing political and religious leaders. And it's as if the case for Jesus' credibility is now being heard in the supreme court of Israel, if you will. We know that Jesus is in the temple. And his competition is on the attack. Hence why I read for you chapter 12, verse 13. Notice the interesting verb there. It says that they were trying to trap him with his words. The word trap there was normally used in that culture to reference hunting or catching animals for food. They're not just trying to embarrass Jesus. It's already been made clear that they want to kill him, and they think if they can get him to say the right thing, that they may actually be able to do that. The best arena for this type of formal debate is the temple. The best means is an argument. The best time is Passover, when there's people all around who can listen and see Jesus stumble publicly. And specifically, what we see here in this passage is three rounds of debate with all three prominent parties of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, if you will. You've got the Pharisees in verses 13 to 17. Then there's round two with the Sadducees in verses 18 to 27. And then you'll see a debate with one of the scribes in verses 28 to 34. Now here's a note for those of you who live in a culture in which you don't value debate. For many of you, debate is nothing more than a war of words To quote Shakespeare, it's sound and fury signifying nothing. Who cares about a debate? Why should I care about this debate between Jesus and those men on that day? But what you need to know is that for Mark's Roman readers and for the Jews present in the temple on that day, formal debate like this would represent a significant test to Jesus' messianic authority. For many people in that culture, rhetoric and oratory were considered the primary means by which one would advance in life. How Jesus handles himself in this rhetorical onslaught would have either affirmed him as uniquely wise teacher from God, or it would expose him as just another man. Maybe able to do some magic tricks, but unable to withstand the scrutiny of the religious heavy hitters of the day. For Jesus to defeat these opponents in this context would be akin to like upsetting Richard Dawkins in a science fair or Bobby Fischer in a chess tournament. From a purely Jewish perspective, Jesus here is the underdog. And the religious leaders have what they think is the home court advantage. So... As we read this text, we need to be asking ourselves some questions. Here they are. Is this Jesus really the possessor of divine truth? How does this, his authority stand when directly challenged by the respected authorities of the day? And the other question. Is he a teacher to be trusted? Is he really one that we should look exclusively to for truth? As we walk through this debate, let's see if Jesus really is the teacher to be trusted above all others. Let's see if he really is the sole possessor of eternal truth, the wisdom of God, as Colossians said. And for the sake of organization, let's look at three different, what I'll call proficiencies of Jesus in this text that will enable us to trust him alone. As this debate continues, you'll see three proficiencies. And the first one is his political prowess. We can trust in Jesus alone on account of his political prowess. You see it in verses 13 to 17. Read with me. I'll read aloud. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Notice the flattery there. 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? What I want you to see here is that Jesus' handling of this politically impossible predicament would impress the original readers and underscore his authority and credibility. I need you to note and really grasp how impossible it was for Jesus to answer this question correctly. It is a trick question to the nth degree, mainly because of the two parties represented. They're unlikely allies. Pharisees and Herodians. The Pharisees were nationalistic. They were fans of a politically pure Israel. They didn't like Rome. But the Herodians, they had sold themselves out as puppets of Rome. They thought that this is as good as it's going to get, and we better make it work with these Roman oppressors. The Pharisees, again, on the other hand, represented a more narrow and conservative Judaism. They were the fundamentalists of their day. But the Herodians, they were progressive, flexible, accommodating in their position. They would have been the liberals of the day. The Pharisees represented resistance to Rome. Herodians, accommodation. But here's the thing that's interesting. They're cemented together by their mutual hatred for Jesus. You've heard that saying, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's so true. People who just can't get along ever can unite over the fact that they hate Jesus. And we see that represented here. They have mutually exclusive interests, and they're asking this question to advance their agenda for his death. Notice the question in verse 14. They came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. Basically, they're trying to say, you're not going to cater to the Herodian party or the Pharisee party. You're just going to tell the truth. And the question comes down to this. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? The question here centers on a poll tax. It's not just taxes in general. The Greek word actually denotes something very specific. The poll tax was something that was forced upon the Jewish people in 6 AD. And it was the tax that was exclusively imposed upon a subjugated and conquered people. This wasn't just the normal tax of the day. This was an additional tax that you had to pay. It was a reminder that you were the loser in the war. This is what they would use to fund the expansion and maintenance of this pagan Roman Empire that had subjugated them at the time. And notice what they do here. They try to force them into a yes or no. They don't give them any leeway. It's a closed question with two totally different outcomes. If he says, yes, you should pay taxes, he would have been siding with the Herodians, thereby opening the charge of idolatry and emperor worship discrediting him as an authority among God's people gathered there for that Passover Sunday. If he says no, he would have been siding with the Pharisees. But what would have happened then? Then he would have opened the door for the charge of sedition, leading to execution by Rome. So he's either going to lose with the Romans, or he's going to lose with the fundamentalist Jews. How is he going to answer? I would liken this question to one asked in our own day, could you imagine a presidential candidate coming along on the campaign trail and then being approached by two parties of people, one represented by a wealthy business owner who's worked hard and has done well for himself, and he wants lower taxes. But at the same time, a minority single mother comes into the picture representing a bunch of others who need this government support just to get the basics of life on a regular weekly occurrence. And then they say, taxes. What do you think of taxes? Should they be raised or lowered? Should there be benefits for the poor or not? When you put things in black and white situations like that, it makes it a little more complex. And that's exactly what's done here. But notice his incredible answer in verse 15. Knowing their hypocrisy, the divine Son of God saw right through it. He said to them, why put me to the test? I even love that question. Like, I can't even believe you're trying this. Who are you to think that you're actually going to test me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. 
Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. What I want you to see is that Jesus doesn't just answer their question, but notice what he does first. He demands a denarius. Now, for those of you who are familiar with that, it's just a silver coin. It represented a day's wage. And it was the coin that had to be used by the Jewish people to pay the poll tax. But it was a scandalous coin because on the coin itself was a picture of Tiberius Caesar, the reigning Roman emperor of the day. And inscribed at the bottom of this coin was this, Son of the Divine Augustus. (laughs) Son of a deity. This coin was blasphemy and idolatry all in one. You had someone representing himself as God, and he's also made himself into a graven image. I mean, to make it worse, it's a pagan claiming to be God on a graven image. I mean, it was just a scandalous thing. Imagine if the U.S. government decided to change all of the quarters in the United States to an Allah we trust. How would you feel about that? I have a feeling that many of you being raised as Christians would be reticent to use that coin in protest. And in a similar way, the people in that day didn't even want to use it. They minted their own copper coins for normal Jewish transactions. But when it came to that poll tax, Rome didn't give a rip about their little copper coins. They wanted a denarius. So it was even scandalous to have one in the first place, but it was a necessary evil. But notice what Jesus does. Whether he had one or not, the text doesn't tell us. But because of the sake of the debate, he says, why don't you produce a denarius for me? <laughs> By them even showing the coin in the first place shows that they've already fallen into his trap. Now they're the ones who are implicated in the support of Rome because they somehow are able to produce this coin in the first place. And it's interesting, though, the focus of the text is not on the fact that he makes them produce the coin, but the fact that his logic is just so simple and clear. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, that opening question is what clues us off to Jesus' answer. When he asks them whose likeness and inscription is this on the coin, he's telling them, look, when you put a likeness or an inscription upon something, it implies ownership. When you place your image into something, it means that it's a piece of property, it's something that you own, and therefore, whatever has Caesar's image inscribed upon it needs to go back to Caesar, and whatever has God's image inscribed upon it should go back to him. Think about that for a moment. The same is true of you. You place your image on things all the time, whether it be your stationery, or for kids in school, the tag of their jacket, or on the inside cover of a book, when you sign your name, or maybe it's the company letterhead or logo, you see it on the truck that you use, or the equipment. Anytime you place your image on something, you're implying ownership and obligation. That this is mine, and it is to be used for my purposes, or it is advancing my agenda. And that's why Jesus points to the inscription on the coin. He's saying, look, Caesar's image is on this coin. Give it back to him. And the implication is, God's image is impressed upon you. You give that back to him. What I'd like you to notice here, and I don't normally bring out these types of details because I don't want you to get lost in them, but it's very clear in the Greek and it should be clear for us. The verb here that Jesus puts or uses to answer these men isn't just give but it's give back. Uh, In the King James, it's uh, render. They basically use the word give, like implying, should we just freely and openly support the Roman government with our money? And Jesus answers with a different question, or a different statement, excuse me. He says, it's not about freely and openly giving, it's about rendering, it's about giving back. They use the word give, Jesus uses the word payback. Implying that there was something that was owned, there was a service rendered, and it needed to be paid for. 
So he's basically saying, give back or pay back the government that which you owe them for the services provided to you. What did Rome provide for them at that time? Where do you think those roads came from? Where did their security come from? They were paying or benefiting from Rome in some way, even though they were being occupied. And he's saying, pay them back for that. The denarius bears Caesar's image, conveying ownership and obligation, so you shouldn't feel conflicted about giving it back. But the greater emphasis is, give back to God that which you owe Him for the services provided to you. You bear God's image, conveying ownership and obligation, so you shouldn't feel conflicted about giving it back. This last command picks up on the theme that Jesus had just hammered them on in the parable of the rebellious tenants. Do you guys remember that from last week? Where Jesus reminds them that God gave you the vineyard. He was the one that gave you all of this, and you owe it back to Him. They weren't giving back to Him that which He had given to them. But what I want you to note here is how Jesus evades the trap. He establishes His authority, He discredits His enemies, and He enlightens His people on the roles of God and government with a simple answer. Round one, Jesus. Political prowess of Jesus is amazing. It stunned those Herodians and Jews and the original debate-loving people of Rome, and it should impress you too. But there's more to Jesus than just political prowess. He also possesses eternal insight. I would say to you that we can trust Jesus alone on account of his eternal insight. We see that in verses 18 to 27 in this second round of the debate. And look at verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Here's their question. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. All right. Get the context here. Here's the next group. Here's the next angle of attack. Jesus makes it through the first one. So now we've got a different political party advancing another question that's going to advance their agenda. They think they can trap Jesus with this. But to understand what's going on here, you have to understand the Sadducees. And thankfully, Mark tells us everything we need to know about these guys. He calls them out. We already know them to be this powerful class of the ruling body of the Sanhedrin. But what they were distinctively known for was their denial of the resurrection. No afterlife. The Jews of the day popularly believed in the resurrection. But these rich, aristocrat, high priest people, they were better than that. For them, they were purists, and they thought, you know what, the only book of the Bible we're going to look at in the Old Testament is going to be the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We don't even need all those other books of the Bible, and since we're only going to look at the first five that Moses wrote, we don't see anything about the resurrection in there. Therefore, there is no resurrection. Now, this wasn't the popular view of the day, but it was the popular view among the rich and the wealthy and the powerful. And so they ask a question. One that they're going to use, a ridiculous question, they're going to use that they hope will poke holes in Jesus' understanding of the resurrection. They want to discredit him. I mean, after all, he's going to later say that he's going to rise from the dead. (laughs) If they can sink this ship before it ever sails, they'd be in good position from a debating standpoint. But the command centers around an Old Testament law that some of you may not be familiar with. It could sound strange to your Western ears. It's called leveret marriage. For those of you who were with us in the study of Ruth, we talked about this in detail. If you want to know more about it, you can look at some other time at Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10. But basically... For these lineage-loving, land-concerned, Old Testament Jews, this was a very important law. Essentially, a man was obligated to marry a childless widow of his brother in order to preserve the name and property of the deceased brother. 
So, they tell this radically hypothetical story about a woman who ends up marrying seven different brothers. And what he's trying to show, since none of them had any children, he's, they, they're trying to say, well, they all have equal claim on this woman in the resurrection. Then she dies. And the big question is, who will she be married to in the resurrection? The first one, the third one, the seventh one. How are you going to determine that? With your belief of the resurrection, how is this question going to get answered? Again, they're trying to poke holes. It's kind of like if you've ever met someone, I'm sure you have, who claims to believe in aliens, and then you ask them, so what did they look like? And where were you when this happened? I was in a cornfield. And what were you I mean, you just keep asking question after question. You don't really believe them. You're just trying to expose how ridiculous it is that anyone would believe this in the first place. No offense to any of you who do believe that. We can talk afterward. <laughs> but they think by asking these kind of questions that, man, they've got them discredited. But notice how Jesus answers. He said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. I love the Greek word here for wrong. It's planao, from which we get our word planet. It means to wander off track or to be led astray. Right at the outset, before he even answers their question, he's telling them, you're way off. You're out in space. You've totally missed it. Even by asking that question, you're showing how stupid you really are. Notice what he challenges them on. He tells them that they're ignorant about that which they claim to know best, the Scriptures. The word there for Scriptures is what the Old Testament Jew would have understood as the Old Testament law, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Those same five books of the Bible that they exclusively knew. He says, you don't even know your own books, nor do you know the power of God. He kind of proves for us that bad questions really do exist. Notice his statement about not knowing the power of God. He's going to follow it up in verse 25. Here Jesus explains why they're so ignorant. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now Jesus' argument here is based on the nature of the resurrection. He's saying, look, you don't know the power of God because you don't know what the resurrected state is even like. The argument is kind of simple, but let me help you a little bit. Earthly life is temporary, right? I mean, statistics are still holding pretty true. 10 out of 10 die. So with that, if life is going to continue here on earth, what has to happen? Procreation. Mommies and daddies have to get together. Babies come. The next generation makes it. Life continues. But in the eternal state, life after death, it doesn't require marriage because it doesn't require procreation, because life of there is eternal. You don't need procreation if you have eternal life. And you don't need marriage if you don't need procreation. That's the only acceptable context, by the way, for that activity. So he's telling them, look, he even follows it up with the angels. Since the angels in heaven, for example, are eternal beings, and they don't have to procreate, and therefore they don't marry, they're not given in marriage, the same will be true for us. Basically, he's saying you don't know the power of God because you don't know the power of the resurrected state. You don't even know what eternal life is like. You don't need to have more children in heaven because life itself will never end. Now, for some of you, I could understand like this could be disturbing information. It, I remember it was for me when I was 18 and not married. I was like, oh, Jesus, please don't come back. I want to get married first. Listen, I don't understand all the details of what marriage will look like or not look like in heaven. But I do believe that whatever God has prepared for us in that day will be amazing. One commentator described it this way, trying to comprehend the nature of the resurrected state is like a baby trying to understand the Grand Canyon at sunset or a Beethoven piano concerto from the confines of the mother's womb. We're just so limited to understand the glories and the graces of that next life. And you may think, I think it should have marriage in it. Whatever it will be, it will be better. 
But what I want you to notice the point. They don't even understand the power of God, how it, the resurrected state just totally changes things. So it's a dumb question because they don't know God's power. But it's also a dumb question because they don't even know the Scriptures. They don't even know their own Scriptures that they claim to believe, that they claim to be experts in. Verse 26 says it this way, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? It's interesting, he mentions this passage of the bush. There were no chapter numbers invented to around the turn of the first millennium. So for them to be able to find where they were looking for in the Old Testament, they had to reference some type of prominent thing, object, activity. They all knew the passage about the bush. Exodus chapter 3 for us. It's when God disclosed His special name to Moses. Moses kept asking, what is your name? What is your name? If I'm going to represent you to Pharaoh, I need to know your name. I need to tell him who's sending me. And what did he say? He says, I am has sent you. I am the God of... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, it's a pretty technical argument, but it's not hard to understand if you get the emphasis of God's name, I am. God always uses this name in the Old Testament to emphasize, listen to this, His eternal, let me define that, never-ending covenant with people. It's the special covenant name of God. I say eternal, never-ending, contrasting that with temporary it goes on forever now the grammar doesn't lead it to this but in effect jesus is saying i am the god of abraham isaac and jacob not i was the god of abraham isaac and jacob if he says if the eternal god says that he's keeping a covenant with the patriarchs of israel that means that they have to still be alive you can't keep a covenant with somebody who has ceased to exist. And therefore, they have misunderstood even the most basic, fundamental name of God revealed in the Old Testament Scriptures. They don't even know what they're asking. They thought they had a brilliant question. And here it is, they have fallen flat on their face in the most public arena possible. Round two. Jesus wins. Notice how Jesus ends it. He says, verse 27, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then he adds, you are quite wrong. <laughs> so he started off by saying, you're wrong. And then he ends by saying, you're quite wrong. Dear religious authorities, you're not just in error, but you are greatly, extravagantly in error. It's not just us who think that Jesus wins this round. You look at verse 28. And notice that one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well. <laughs> Even that guy recognizes that Jesus dominated this debate with the Sadducees. I mean, who else has such a firm handle on eternity? Who else knows such details of the resurrected state? Who else would you listen to on these matters? When I look at this passage from the vantage point of Mark's reader's I can't help but think of these guys I met one time in college who were having uh, a debate amongst themselves about how to best get a girlfriend. And what you need to understand about each of these guys, none of them had ever had a girlfriend. I hope they're not listening. But it is true. They had never been on a date. Nobody had ever been on a date in that room. There was a bunch of ignorance sitting all in one place. And I remember overhearing, there was a room here, room here, and there's a bathroom in between, and the doors were open, and I'm sitting there doing my homework, and they are waxing eloquent to this one gentleman about how he could best get this girl. And their advice was crazy. <laughs> they said, here's what you need to do. You need to go up to the computer lab, and you need to go sit beside her at the computer lab, but don't talk to her. And then if she goes to the library, you're going to go to her the library and, and get close to her, but don't say anything. Now, I'm only doing that to expose the ignorance. Look, hear me well. If you're a teenager or if you're like in college, um, if, if somebody's not married, they're probably not the best person to talk to about how to get married. Uh, ten out of ten times, teenagers shouldn't get dating advice from other teenagers. Can we just agree on that? Now, I'm pointing this out because 
Why would we ever get advice on eternity from someone who doesn't know much about it? I mean, really. People today looking to all kinds of authorities, people who have never experienced death, people who have never come back from death, they don't know anything about it, but somehow they're just going to listen and say, yeah, you know what, I think that Oprah has a good view on the afterlife. Really? Jesus shows that He's the one that knows all the details of the resurrection. He's the one that has insight into the eternal state. Personally, maybe this is opinion, I would not trust Jesus' knowledge of the resurrection and His promises on eternal life if He had not personally been there and done that. And I don't think you should either. The resurrection is the hinge point of our faith, and I promise you, we would not be looking at this text today with such awe and admiration if Jesus would have stayed dead in that tomb. But knowing what we know, we look back and see, wow, this guy knew about eternity. This is a teacher that must be trusted. Can I ask you, do you ever wonder what's on the other side? Do you ever wonder about what happens next? Maybe you've heard the old saying, dead men tell no tales. It's true. No one speaks with authority about death, ever, but Jesus. He's the only one that's experienced it and overcome it. And therefore, he's the only one that we should listen to about it. Jesus dominates the debate. Someone with this kind of first-hand knowledge about eternity is worth following. He's worth commending. The Jesus we serve knows what's on the other side. He knows death firsthand. He has defeated it for all who will turn from their sin and trust in Him. So from what we've seen so far, I think this is a teacher to be trusted. He possesses political prowess, eternal insight. But that's not all. He can also be trusted on account of his ethical clarity. We can trust in Jesus alone on account of his ethical clarity. Look with me at verses 28 to 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now it's here in this text that Jesus settles an age-long debate in a mere moment. And what it highlights is his ethical acumen as a teacher from God. He's mastered the material. He knows the law better than anybody. The context is interesting because you've got the third dominating party of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Remember, we've had the Pharisees, we've had the Sadducees, and now here is one of the scribes. A scribe was a scholar, he was a legal expert, and the way that Mark has portrayed the scribes throughout the entire book, they are the express enemies of Jesus. They hate his guts. Back in 1118, it was the scribes who were specifically called out as one of the prominent groups plotting to, quote, destroy Jesus. So Mark's reminding us, this is one of those guys. Even Matthew, in his account, makes this clear because some people try to make this guy out to be very friendly. But Matthew says he was testing him. While the account ends up different than you expect, it starts off the way all the others do. There's an enemy, he's trying to trip up Jesus, and he can't help but notice Jesus' domination up to this point. It's kind of like everybody else is getting their backsides kicked, and they're like, all right, now I'm going to try my hand. I'm going to bring up one of the biggest debates that have been passed down through the centuries for those of us who follow Judaism. The most important, the greatest commandment, one of the premier debates. At least I could slow him down because he seems to be just waxing the floor with everybody else. And it was a debate indeed because if you think about it, you look at the Jewish Old Testament law. There were 613 separate commands. That's a lot of stuff to keep up with. And so I think you would want, and I would want, like, all right, what's a way that we could summarize this thing? Like, what are the one or two things that I could do that would cover it all? 
It's a great question. But nobody had an answer. We're talking hundreds of years of debate and nobody could come to any type of conclusive answer whatsoever. And yet Jesus' answer is impeccably clear. It's as if he doesn't even have to think about it. He goes straight to what I would call the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. What I mean by that is, like most kids growing up in America in some type of church, they all know John 3.16. Every Jewish kid growing up, they all would have known Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. It's called the Shema. 6, 4 to 6, excuse me. These verses were recited by every pious Jew, both in the morning and in the evening, and they authoritatively proclaimed that exclusive and extravagant love for Yahweh is first. We saw the command there. Hear the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. But notice what he does. Then he links it to Leviticus 19.18, showing that you can't do the first one, love God, without also closely connecting it to the second one, love your neighbors. Now let's break down this command into two parts here. Love God exclusively. That's why he says the Lord our God is one. There's only one God. God is the one and only Lord. He alone must be worshipped as such. So the question now becomes, all right, since there's only one God and we're supposed to love Him alone, how do we worship the only God, the one and only? Well, we don't just love Him exclusively, we love Him extravagantly. Literally, Jesus is saying here, you do these things not with, but from or out of every facet of your being. Admittedly, the Greek and Jewish words that are represented here are pretty hard to parse individually. I'm not going to try to define each one of those words. There's a lot of overlap between them. But when you combine the ideas together, the idea becomes pretty clear. Love for God should spring up or bubble forth from your thoughts, your feelings, your actions, your intuitions. Or I could say it this way. Yahweh must be the consuming passion of your heart, your head, your soul. You get it? Every part of you should naturally rise up in love for God. That's when, that's the first And greatest commandment. And notice, the guy didn't ask for the second, but Jesus gives it anyway. Because he wants them to know that it's inextricably related. What's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. It implies that we already naturally love ourselves. We naturally look out for our own best interests. And since that just kind of happens anyway, he's saying love other people to that degree. This had never been done before. In the history of debates on this subject, nobody had ever taken this command and paired it with that one and said that this is the greatest. And what Jesus does here is brilliant because it avoids the danger of mysticism. By that I mean a detached and disembodied love for God. You know people who claim to be one with God and yet they're horrible in their relationships with other people. And at the same time, it avoids humanism which people seem to be so friendly and loving toward others, but they have no respect for the divine Creator Himself. Jesus walks the line here in a brilliant way, and no rabbi had ever figured this out before. Now I know what some of you are thinking, especially those of you who grew up in church. Like, oh yeah, this is common knowledge, of course, yes, the greatest commandment. If you were to ask me that, I would have been able to answer that question. Look, I get it. But what you need to understand is that He was the first one to... to settle this debate decisively. There are important discoveries that we assume today that at some point weren't known, much to society's detriment. Think of a few of these. What are some things that have improved the quality of our life and our understanding of the world around us that we just assume today, but at one point were not understood? I'll give you a few examples. Penicillin. You just think, oh yeah, antibiotics, all right, cool, I know... But before 1928, in Alexander Fleming, there was no penicillin. People were dying. It was a big deal for this to come out. We assume it today, it was a big deal then. Another one, gravity. It was always around, but nobody knew what it was until Isaac Newton came along and had the little apple hit him on the head. 1664, we finally started understanding gravity, that things get pulled down. And yet now today we're like, oh yeah, gravity. But think about it. For the history of the modern, nobody knew until he had come along. Or in a similar way, x-rays. 
Aren't you glad that you have that capacity today to be able to see that broken arm and to set it again and think, oh, x-rays, old stuff, but not till 1895. Before that, nobody ever could see within the skin without cutting it open. And my point in just bringing these things up is that Jesus here makes an ethical discovery of the ages. This is something that those people had never heard before. There was never this kind of clarity and simplicity on what God expected of us until Jesus spoke these words on that day. And what makes this even better is that Jesus' enemy can't help but respond by agreeing with him. Look at verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that He is one and there is no other besides Him. And to love Him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Are you getting what's going on here? Here we have a formerly sworn enemy of Jesus whose livelihood consists of interpreting and teaching the Old Testament law, wholeheartedly agreeing with Jesus' simple and concise answer to one of the most unsolvable dilemmas of the day. This is huge. He says to him, not just you are right, but the word actually is more of like, well said, splendid, hear, hear. It's a euphoric word. It's one of excitement. He's not just reluctantly agreeing with Jesus. All of a sudden, it strikes him that, wow, this guy knows the law. So here, a religious authority... A custodian of the externally focused religion of the day even acknowledges that Jesus' ethics of love for God and neighbor was greater than the sacrifices and the offerings. Jesus never even said that, but the guy puts it together. One scholar wrote, The sweeping demotion of the whole system of temple sacrifice, much of whose professional concern focused around sacrificial regulations, is remarkable. The fact that this guy would actually agree with Jesus, even to the point of saying that all these sacrifices around this time of Passover weren't as big a deal as they were making it out to be, that was huge. Verse 34, notice how Jesus responds. It's like the tone of this thing changes. It was antagonistic, and now it's friendly. Verse 34, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Notice Jesus' final estimation of his former enemy. This one trying to ensnare him. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Here we had a scribe who was coming to pass judgment on Jesus, but now Jesus passes judgment on the scribe. This is a huge reversal. The man's been blown away by Jesus' authority. He sees Jesus as the one who knows the essence of righteousness with God. And I would say to you today, no matter your previous history with Jesus, one of the great steps in the right direction toward eternal life, the kingdom of God, salvation from sin, is the recognition that Jesus is not just a teacher, or even the great teacher of Israel, but the authoritative teacher from God, the only one to be trusted exclusively and fully. And when you look at this text, and you hear His call, For you to love God exclusively and extravagantly. And to love your neighbor as yourself. What does your heart cry? Is it, yes, right, yes, this is true, I know. If that's the case, you too may not be far from the kingdom of God. Or already in it. As a follow-up to that first question, let me ask this. Do you actually love Him exclusively and extravagantly? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? I think if you're being honest, I think if we're all being honest, we know that the answer is no. We don't love him the way he expects or he deserves. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. But here's what I want you to know, because Mark's book will continue, but our sermon ends in this text. You need to know that why Jesus came was to solve this very problem. Yes, you were supposed to love God in these ways. Yes, you were supposed to love your neighbor in these ways. You haven't done it, and that's why He came in the first place. You haven't loved God perfectly, but He has. You haven't loved your neighbor selflessly, but He has. And that righteousness before God that so regularly eludes you has been made available for the taking by means of His death, burial, and resurrection. This is great news. 
You can go from near the kingdom of God to in the kingdom of God by simply turning from your sin and trusting in this Jesus who has done the righteous things that you were never able to do in the first place. You could talk to one of us if you have questions about that, but that's really the essence of this. This is where Mark is going. This is that Jesus. Now finally notice how the entire episode concludes. The second half of verse 34. And after that, no one dared to ask him any questions. This is the narrative high point of the whole account. The enemies of Jesus, the only earthly challengers to his religious authority, give up and walk away. From this point forward, if they're going to destroy Jesus, it's not going to be through open debate or in the light of the temple. It's going to have to be done through deception and deviance and under the cloak of darkness, which is exactly what will happen. For now, today, here, at Faith Bible Church in Naples, Mark wants us to see that Jesus wins. His authority as a teacher, as the teacher, is to be trusted He is unstoppable. He is the clear ruler of the temple. He is the authority over access to God. And isn't this just like Jesus? Do you see now why we can trust Him exclusively? He's mastered the material. He possesses ethical clarity and eternal insight and political prowess. Who else has these things? Who else will you listen to for eternal life? Who else even matters or gets a vote about what's right or wrong or best or worst or wise or foolish? I would only have you in closing compare Jesus with the greatest leaders and authorities of our own day. I don't know if any of you, like me, took interest in this most recent political season. I'm not in it all the time, but it seems like every four years I can gear myself back up to find out who the next challenger will be, who the next contender will be, at least for authority here in these United States. If you've ever followed or taken interest in politics, especially election season, you know the inevitable disappointment of finding a hopeful candidate only to ultimately be disappointed by them in some way. I don't care your political background. Everybody, you see somebody, you like them, her, and you think, oh, awesome, they've got it. Look at this presentation, the polish, their background, they can do it, and then... There's a slip-up. Inevitably, the ever-present media finds something. They bring it up, and you're like, oh, how did that happen? I mean, surviving the gauntlet of liberal media, Saturday Night Live, every mistake you've ever made being recorded somewhere on the Internet, it's impossible. I don't care how great these men are or women. No one ever wins. No one ever comes out with impeccable authority. Every would-be authority is, will be, or has been successfully smeared in some way. They have lost at some point. They've been shown to be insufficient or lacking. And the truth is, the approval rating has not, cannot, and will not ever be 100% with earthly rulers. It's just a fact. But on this day, in Mark's gospel, we see one who had done that which none of the figures of history had ever been able to do. We see one who escapes every trap, one who discredits every enemy, one who establishes himself as the uncontested authority of access to God. This is a teacher you can trust. Here we see Jesus not just one among many, but as the one and only. Here we see the idea that He possesses a monopoly on eternal truth. And yes, there are more lessons in this text. But what Mark wants us to see is a portrait of the superior wisdom of God embodied in His Son, Jesus. As we look to the rest of our day, are weak. Let me close by saying that Jesus is an authority, a teacher, the teacher, 
that should be trusted exclusively, listened to regularly, followed radically, and shared passionately. Let me repeat that. This text is true. Jesus should be trusted exclusively, listened to regularly, followed radically, and shared passionately. Do you trust Him exclusively? Do you see the wisdom of God in Jesus, and have you decided to turn from the error of your own ways, or your own traditions, your own knowledge, your own education, and to trust in Jesus alone? Do you look to Him alone for the source of eternal truth? My prayer is that you would do that today. Let's say that is you. I would ask you this. Are you listening to Him regularly? He's preserved His unsurpassed wisdom through the writings of the apostles and the prophets and scripturated in these 66 books of the Bible. These are the scriptures that can make you, as Timothy says, wise unto salvation. Are you putting yourself in the path of God's grace through the reading and studying of His Word on a regular basis? What else would you learn? Next question. You may trust and listen, but do you follow Him radically? It's one thing to listen. It's another thing to learn. But it's quite another thing altogether to live. To actually put this into practice. I mean, if you just look at the things that are presented here, you could ask simple questions like, do you live a life according to His standard? Are you loyal to the authorities? Are you devoted to God because of what He's given you? Are you excited about the resurrection? Are you loving God exclusively and extravagantly? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Like, This demands our obedience. It calls for it. It's not just a listening. It's not just a learning, but it's a living. And then last question. Are you sharing Him passionately? It was Peter who Mark drew most of his source material that said to Jesus, Where else can we go, Lord, for you have the words of eternal life? What a great question. Where else will your friends and family and neighbors and co-workers and fellow students, classmates, where will they go since he alone has the words of eternal life? Are they going to go to Pope Francis? Are they going to go to the Watchtower Society? Are they going to go to their college professor? Their anthropology teacher? Their grandparents? Their traditions? Muhammad? I mean, where do they go? If you don't point them to Jesus. Or will you share with them the eternal, unassailable truth of Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God? I pray that you will. Let's pray together. Lord, we are amazed at the wisdom of Christ. He rules, He reigns. There is no authority even close. Lord, He deserves our full allegiance. And so, Lord, there are some here today who need to trust in You. They have not done it yet. I pray they would do that today. I pray that they would see this beautiful, powerful portrait of Jesus and come to Him in repentance and faith today. Do that, even in our midst, before the afternoon's over. And Lord, there are some who need to listen. They listen to so many other things. They get advice and input from so many other sources. They're not looking to the Word regularly, even though they claim to follow You. Give them a hunger and appreciation, a passion for truth this week. Use this text to do that. And Lord, we also pray that we not only would learn Your truth, but that we would live it out, that we'd be fully loyal to You, the resurrected Lord, or that our good deeds, that our works would be put on display and that they would point people to you. Or in whatever area any of us may have been challenged in today to change, to improve. Pray that we look to you for that and that you'd be honored and glorified, not just on our lips, but in our lives. 
And finally, we pray that we as a church and as individuals will share you passionately. Other people are looking to sources of truth that are empty, that are false. They're looking to broken cisterns that hold no water. And we have the solution. We have the source. We have the water. We have the truth. It is Jesus. I pray that that would compel us this week to share the gospel compassionately, powerfully. May more be converted through the influence of this church and your people devoted to you and your message. Amaze us by your wisdom. It's in Jesus' name I pray and ask all these things. Amen.